Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, this is fun, isn't it? Preaching to the choir, an easy assignment. But I have to admit, my heart is really um, in the trenches and with the people who are still bound by some of the ideas that we're fighting and talking about here today. And uh, the joy of seeing them liberated by grace is the reward. And uh, my heart also is really uh, in places where the battle has not yet uh, entrenched itself and um, the pot is not yet stirred, but is simmering, or in places where there is still a vacuum, especially overseas. And I like to see this grace message get overseas. And I'm really glad that people like Jody are doing that. The battle has not even been introduced there, and much less the gospel. And I feel that if we can get the gospel there uh, first, there doesn't need to be an argument. There doesn't need to be a debate about lordship salvation. And although there are some who say that lordship salvation is an American argument, and I've heard people say that it is, it is in print, what I'm finding in my correspondence and email is, it is that it is around the world because this literature is going around the world. So we have a worldwide mission field, and thank God for those who are ministering in different parts of the world and getting there first. Well, as I mentioned, a few months ago, I was in Russia, and I'm kind of glad that I got to go there during the coldest part of the winter because uh, Russian winters are beautiful, and the hardy Russians are really proud of them, I found. But of all the things I saw, one image is really impressed on my mind. It is the uh, image of Russians standing in line in the snow outdoors at ice cream booths. It's said that when Winston Churchill visited Russia, he saw this. And he said, these people eat ice cream outside in the winter. We will not fight these people. <laughs> now, I love ice cream, but my thin Texas blood didn't have the slightest desire to eat ice cream outside the whole time I was there, much less to eat it in sub-zero wind chill weather. Uh, to me, it was just one too many redundancies. To some adherents of Lordship Salvation, we are like those Russians. At this conference, we are just standing in line expounding a redundancy. You see, they say, and I quote, every believer is spirit-filled. So this conference is much ado about nothing. Goodbye. See you later. That's what they think that we are doing. Yet when we read our Bibles, we rec recognize that there are examples of believers who, subsequent to salvation, were filled with the Spirit or who were characterized as full of the Spirit. And we consider ourselves subject to that timeless command in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. And since God doesn't speak in unnecessary redundancies, although that phrase is one itself, we believe that there is a Spirit-filled life available to all believers and realized by some believers. All believers have the Holy Spirit resident in them, but each believer must choose how to respond and appropriate what the Spirit brings to them. Other commands remind us of our responsibility in this relationship to the third person of the Godhead, such as 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So in the, my message today, I want to examine how some Lordship salvationists come to the conclusion that all believers are filled with the Spirit, or at least the conclusion that all believers will progress demonstrably in their spirituality. And in doing so, we'll have the opportunity to evaluate their presuppositions. Some Lordship teachers are well known to us. And I don't want to pick on anybody in particular. The uh, names will be in, uh, in what's this, sub, subliminable messages. The names are in my document, if you care to see who these quotes are attributed to. It's a broad subject, and uh, there are 
much we could say and many different ways of answering, but I want to choose some of the main issues in this debate. First of all, let's start where the Reformation began with the doctrine of justification. Much of the Lordship salvation debate is fueled by Reformed theologians who lay claim to the Reformation's theological heritage. And while almost every proponent of Lordship will declare that justification should be understood as forensic, declared righteous instead of made righteous, they will also insist that the grace that justifies also transforms. The same efficacious or irresistible grace that justifies a person guarantees that that person will progress in sanctification. And certainly that sanctifying process would include being a spirit-filled believer if every believer is spirit-filled. Of course, we also believe that we're justified by grace, but grace to the lordship side is a power and not a possibility, not just a possibility. And I don't see that grace forces godliness. I see that grace makes godliness a possibility. I recognize that the Bible may seem to speak as if grace is a power in and of itself. When we read a verse like in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It sounds as if grace itself is the power rather than the principle or the instrumental cause, which gives us access to Jesus Christ, who is the power. The last part of the verse says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Titus 2, 11 through 12 declares that God's grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And this verse also shows us that grace is not the primary cause, but the instrumental cause, which makes it possible for the Lord to teach us and to change us. It is God who is sufficient. It is God who changes us, and he does this through his grace. And when we say that grace changes us, just as we might say that faith changes us or hope purifies us, what we're really saying is that God changes us. In spite of our articulation of grace in Titus 2, 11 through 12 like this, at least one lordship advocate calls our position the, quote, no effective grace position. And from this kind of lordship reasoning comes the conclusion that if our view of grace only makes godliness possible, then it does not have to change us. And if it does not have to change us, then we don't have to change. And if we do not have to change, they say we teach antinomianism that leads to license. One says, quote, antinomianism makes obedience elective, unquote. That's something he attributes to us. But their charge is in theory only. I think they fail to demonstrate that free grace theology does not produce godliness. Indeed, they even admit otherwise with very, very many complimentary remarks about our free grace leaders. Still, the not so subtle implication is that if we allow the possibility of rejecting godliness, then we endorse it. The belief that justifying faith guarantees progressive sanctification or godliness results in the Reformed doctrine of perseverance. The classic statement, of course, is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They whom God hath, hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Of course, a number of New Testament passages are cited in support of this doctrine, and uh, we're not going to go on them to into them today. We have addressed them in free grace literature and Bob's uh, literature and book. But when listening to the Lordship presentation of perseverance, one can hardly avoid the suspicion that this doctrine is, we can't avoid the suspicion that it is not more than a product of theological extrapolation instead of biblical exegesis. I was once listening to a radio program where a lordship author was defending this, uh, his whole doctrine, but including this idea. A caller 
called to ask about, ask about the doctrine of perseverance. Where did it come from, was the question. And this author on the radio said, the doctrine of perseverance, I quote, goes back to St. Augustine, unquote. And I was listening as I drove my car. I almost became a case for the good hands people. Do we really want a doctrine that only goes back to St. Augustine? I prefer to speak of God's preservation of the believer instead of the believer's perseverance. God will preserve a believer in his guarantee of salvation. And this view avoids the performance factor needed to prove one's salvation as required by the doctrine of perseverance. Anyway, back to the central issue, the spirit-filled believer. In the Lordship view, to be justified is to be progressively sanctified or to be guaranteed growth in godliness. Or to put it in other terms, to be a, become a believer is to become a disciple. Or to be saved by grace is to be transformed irresistibly by grace into a spiritual person. Because the indwelling spirit, in their view, can do no less. Now, if you think that Lordship proponents confuse justification and sanctification, take heart because they criticize one another for doing the same thing in their own literature. And yet I'm hard-pressed to find that they can finesse their understanding of justification, the relationship between justification and sanctification, any better than those that they criticize. Such confusion of these doctrines forces us to ask, if godliness is guaranteed, why do we have so many ethical demands in the New Testament? Why are there so many warnings in the New Testament? Why are rewards relevant or even motivating if every believer will persevere and obtain them? Another major problem is how to quantify godliness. Who is the judge of whether a believer has progressed enough so as to be truly qualified as a saved person? And can we always see spirituality? Are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, do they exist? Can they exist in someone to a degree that may go undetected by others? And how can we effectively eavesdrop on a believer's silent prayer to see if they are genuine and spirit-led? Do we take into account the moral starting place of a believer? For example, if someone smokes, 10, smokes marijuana 10 times a day, becomes a believer and cuts down to one time a week, are we willing to attribute that to the work of the Spirit of God in his life? Or if a wife beater becomes a Christian and stops beating his wife and yet emotionally abuses his wife, do we contribute that to the work of the Spirit? Or what if he stops emotionally abusing his wife and only criticizes her cooking? So where do we draw the line? You see the problem. I believe that a person who is justified will be sanctified. The person is sanctified positionally in God's sight. That person will be sanctified ultimately in glorification. And I'm even willing to say that that person is sanctified progressively in godliness because God has given that person a new life and is at work in him. Philippians 2.13. Most of the times this is going to be evident, but I think there are people and situations in which I shudder to think that I would have to judge when this is the real thing when there is genuine progress. I summarize with um, Michael Eaton's words in his book on assurance. He said, justification prepares for sanctification, but does not, as both Arminianism and Calvinism have suggested, force sanctification. There is a strong link between justification and sanctification. The former produces a strong impulse in the direction of the latter. Well, we want to talk about faith, because I think when we talk about the nature of saving faith, we come to really the crux of the differences that we have with the Lordship salvation side. In their view, faith is a gift of God, and that determines a lot of their theology for them. As a gift, it will effectively cause us to obey after we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I've always had problems, both biblical and theologically, with faith as a gift of God. The biblical evidence is very weak, I believe. Usually we, we cite Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 to support faith as a gift. 
And uh, I deal with that in my book in the back there, so I'm not going to deal with that passage here. But even uh, Hokema, a strong Calvinist, Reformed Calvinist, admits that faith as a gift comes more from a theological necessity. He says, it is hard to find specific biblical texts teaching that faith is the gift of God. The fact that we are completely dependent on God for our salvation, as well as everything else, certainly implies that we cannot have true faith unless God enables us to do so. The Lordship also teaches that faith is a commitment of the whole person. The Lordship teacher would say that when one exercises God-given faith in Jesus Christ, commitment, surrender, and mastery of one's life to Christ is all a package deal. So such a beginning to the Christian life ensures that there will be a follow-through with fruit and perseverance. And so it is said, quote, by one, faith, therefore, involves personal commitment to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.15. In other words, all true believers follow Jesus, John 10.27-28. And he also says, quote, faith encompasses obedience, unquote. A study of the words for believe and faith quickly show that commitment is not a part of their definition. Faith is a persuasion that something is true. It is an agreement to the truthfulness of something. Faith motivates commitment and obedience. And it is seen in the recurring formula. I think that relationship is seen in the recurring formula in Hebrews chapter 11, where it is said, by faith, so-and-so obeyed. Positive response to the command to believe is itself obedience, but that does not mean that faith is itself obedience. The response of faith is obedience to the command to believe. Faith is a response to God's revelation that shows that one is inclined and motivated to obey. It also obtains in salvation further motivation and power to obey. But faith is not the same as obedience. The argument that faith encompasses obedience is not so different from the confusion of justification and sanctification. They render the same conclusions, and we would counter with many of the same questions about the relative nature of commitment and surrender. How much is enough? And why are there biblical commands to grow in our obedience? and in our holiness, or to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't these assumed in the faith that we already have, according to their view? But they say, faith can grow. And they cite, for example, the story in Mark 9 about the boy, the father of the spirit-possessed boy, who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But we say, still, didn't he say, I believe? And wasn't the boy delivered because of that weak faith, because it was in a worthy object? the person of Jesus Christ? Can a person have a shaky faith in a sturdy fire escape and yet be saved from the fire? Of course he can. Faith does grow, but if a weak faith can save us, why do we insist on faith growing before we will accept salvation as genuine? The spirit-filled believer grows spiritually and lives obediently because he is responding to the word of God through a living faith that allows the spirit of God to apply that word in his or her, her life. Again, we see faith not as the efficient cause, but as the instrumental cause. It is God the Spirit who prompts us and enables us to obey. It is faith that allows us to respond to his promptings and enablement, whether it be initially in salvation or subsequently in sanctification. So the Spirit-filled life is not automatic, but it is the product of God's Spirit working in response to our faith. A third main issue that often comes up in this debate is the, this question of regeneration and its effects. Another way to state the inevitable change insisted upon by the Lordship Salvationist is that regeneration will produce or guarantee a changed life. And here are some of the implications of this view. First of all, this view logically demands that regeneration precede faith. Most Lordship adherents seem to hold to the Reformed position that the order of salvation must begin with God's regenerating work 
so that those who are dead in sin can be made alive in order to believe. This is a result of their view of total depravity, which equals total inability of the unsafe person to do anything anything toward his or her salvation. I understand total depravity to mean that the unbeliever has no goodness that contributes or merits anything towards his or her justification. But faith is not such a contribution. It only accepts what God offers. It is a response to God's calling, convicting, wooing, and persuading the sinner to accept what he has promised is true. And I commend to you a wonderful article by Dave Anderson in the latest, I think the latest uh, journal of the Grace Evangelical Society on regeneration. Faith clearly must precede regeneration when we look at the biblical evidence. John 1, John 3, John 6, John, 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 for that matter. But they also say that as a new man, we are united with Christ and we serve under a new master. And here is their appeal to Romans 6. And this guarantees, they say, spiritual realities in our life. United with Christ in his death, we die to the old master and we've been united in his resurrection to walk as a new man and a newness of life. And this new position, they say, automatically encompasses a new practice. Now, Jim has done a nice job addressing the Romans 6 passage, and I only need to say here that the lordship interpretation neglects the significance of the ethical demands that Jim pointed out in Romans chapter 6. The new position, though explained by Paul, does not assume a new practice, or else he would not have left those commands. He said, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. He says, do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. Clearly, the believer in his new position has a choice. In Romans, remember, justification is presented before this appeal for godly living because the believer's position must be established before an ethical appeal can be made. This is contrary, totally contrary to the lordship position, that one's lordship view, let me use that word, because they say that one's position is verified only by one's response to the ethical demands. So the position is never really established at all. God's grace and justification is the motivation and basis for the ethical demands. Well, one can be in a new position, yet yield yield to the power or persuasion of the old. A Chinese communist may come to America and gain U.S. citizenship and yet still live in fear of the police. A man's wife may die and he may still speak to her as he passes her photograph in the hallway and try to guess what she would want him to do or, or wear that day to work. And such positions are illogical, we, we understand. Yet we, know, we all know people who are enslaved to the past for no good reason. And we all know and ourselves have displayed a wayward, illogical obedience to the old master of sin instead of to the new master Christ at times. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that word reckon, he is calling us to give a considered, calculated decision about what our position entails and enables. The Lordship view leads to a third implication. As a new and regenerated person, the Christian will not continue in slavery to sin. They say that is not a possibility. There is no carnal Christian. Though they admit that Christians can and will sin, they also believe that they will not remain in sin. There is no ongoing state of carnality with those who are truly regenerated and made new. Now, we might argue exactly what constitutes a carnal Christian. In fact, we have argued what constitutes a carnal Christian, I guess. But uh, all we need to do is point out examples of those who persisted in sin in the New Testament. 
Not everybody in the New Testament died in a spirit-filled state. Some died in sin. Ananias and Sapphira, the believers at Corinth who abused the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And the scriptures warn that a believer may uh, commit a sin that is unto death. James 5, 1 John 5. If this is a possibility or reality, then what does it matter if we call them carnal or not? To say that these believers who died in sin were never really believers to begin with simply begs the question. Certainly when one believes and is regenerated, there is a constitutional change in that person. He or she becomes a new person, a new creation. And certainly the believer is also born again into a new life. But again, we're left with subjective questions of how we can quantify or measure or verify that change. And how can we quantify the amount of sin that would disqualify a person from saved status? Also, if the new man is guaranteed, a guaranteed practical reality, why are there commands to put off the old man and put on the new man in Ephesians 4? Or to put to death sinful tendencies and put on godly practices in Colossians chapter 3. Becoming a new man constitutionally allows, enables, motivates, and makes possible emergence into a new man practically. Now, it would be hard for me to imagine no obvious change for the better in a new life born of God. But we must recognize the biblical reality of believers who persist in sin and believers who show little or no obvious change. Now, the issue of doubts. Here we address, I think, the very heart of the motivation behind the lordship view of spirituality. They believe that doubts motivate spirituality. We find many lordship teachers, actually, who say that doubts are a good impetus to examine ourselves and to see if we really are believers. But I think nowhere does the superstructure of Lord, the lordship view show the flaws in its foundation than right here in this area, because they are attacking the issue of the doctrine of assurance. And needless to say, assurance in the Lordship salvation is impossible. They sometimes admit to a degree of assurance. They sometimes distinguish between initial assurance and full assurance. And they say full assurance develops with time and maturity and spiritual growth. But I say assurance is assurance. We speak as one sin or many sin enough to condemn us before God. And so also a little assurance or a lot of assurance is the same in giving us the certainty of eternal life. Assurance is assurance. Most lordship advocates would teach that assurance is balanced like a three-legged stool, they say. One leg is the word of God. The other leg is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Another leg is the evidence of a changed life. And without any of these three legs, they say, the stool topples over. But it's easy to see that when we leave the objective promises of God, we're left to interpret subjectively what the witness of the Spirit is or the evidence of a changed life really is. And since these are not objective, we're left in a cycle of perpetual doubts. Experience and observation tells us that feelings and their interpretation depend on many things in life. Earthly things like how much sleep you get, how's your health, or what you've been eating, or who you happen to be influenced by at the time. But Christians should embrace doubt, they say. Self-examination is good. But one says too much introspection is not healthy. Though he doesn't say how much is too much, that would be an impossible task. I guess there really can be too much of a good thing, according to their view. Another suggests that if we're not eager to do God's will, then we should doubt our salvation. And I thought of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling to go to the cross, showing less than an eager spirit. And who defines eager anyway? So if a believer should examine himself, as they say, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, another passage that we could go into, but we have literature on. What does he examine? According to the Lordship view, his works, his eagerness to obey, his faithfulness. A satisfactory evaluation will supposedly give him the assurance that he is saved. And so we see how easily the motivation to live 
a righteous life suddenly turns from a God-centered gratitude to a self-centered interest in ensuring that we have salvation. It is not love or gratitude that motivates us, but the very bottom line is that it is a fear of rejection in hell itself. Now the believer is back to the, to the law as a prosecutor instead of grace as a liberator. Now we must perform in order to see the blessings of eternal life instead of respond to the fact that we have already been blessed with eternal life. It is the same difference between the actions of a slave and the actions of a son. And the Bible calls us sons, not slaves. The issue of assurance is central to this whole discussion of the spirit-filled life. Do you really think that doubt and insecurity and uncertainty and fear of rejection can produce a spirit-filled life? How can anyone enjoy a flight on an airplane or jet if he spends his time wondering if the plane is going to crash? The question answers itself, doesn't it? Imagine this conversation between a father and a son. Son, did you finish your homework like I asked? Yes. Good, that's my boy. Did you mow the lawn like I asked? No. Oh, well, maybe you're not really my boy after all. But, Dad, what do you mean? Well, my son would obey me. But I do obey you. Well, sometimes. I mean, I want to, but, you know, Dad, I get distracted. Can't I be your son and get distracted sometimes? You don't, don't expect all of your children to be perfect, do you? No. Well, then why do you make me doubt my sonship when I make a mistake? Well, son, it's because I'm hoping that my doubts will motivate you to love and obey me. What kind of father would be so foolish? A wise son would answer his father like this. Dad, doubts don't motivate me to love and obey you. They scare me. And then I get bitter towards you because you're being arbitrarily fickle in your acceptance of me. It makes me want to quit trying. How about accepting me as your son forever and loving me even when I fail you? I would love you and obey you more if I knew that I could never lose your love. So you see, the Lordship Salvation View provides no environment for true spiritual maturity. Holiness and godliness come through a relationship where there's acceptance and confidence in that relationship. And only the closest possible relationship with Jesus Christ will produce the Christ-likeness and spiritual fruit that we seek. Doubts do not enhance intimacy in our relationship to God. Psychiatrist Frank Minrith writes about the harmful effects of lordship salvation. He says, untold psychological damage is done when an individual is accepted on a conditional basis. This may be expressed in a contradictory message such as, I love you, but you must, whatever. It produces a paradox that makes choice impossible. And in his article, he goes on to explain how what he calls a double bind message, double bind message, can lead to a number of psychological and spiritual disorders, anything but what we would call godliness. We also see how those who are introspective by nature, and by the way, those are some of the most sincere people in the church, how these introspective folks are destroyed by this teaching. You and I have met them, and we've heard from them. I hear from them regularly, and it is difficult to watch them struggle. Their, their lives represent anything but the fullness of the Spirit and His fruits. Let me read to you a letter one woman wrote to me, some excerpts. She said, about 20 years ago, the monster, and then she had parenthesis, Lordship Salvation, terrorized my life. I always wondered if I had really repented and had not quote, hung on to any sins, unquote, as my pastor would say. I spent about three years after I had accepted Jesus as my Savior, agonizing over the fact that I had not completely surrendered my life when I had accepted him as my Savior. I was even saved and baptized about six to eight times after I was actually saved. I lost count of the baptisms. I was so ashamed. I nearly lost my mind asking the Lord to save me. I did it so many times, hundreds of times. Now, finally, this woman heard and understood the gospel of grace, and she's now walking joyfully in assurance. 
Such doubt and introspection also destroys joyful ministry, and sometimes ministry altogether, since it is so self-absorbed by nature. Another person wrote me who, who had been struggling with this issue and finally gained his assurance and said that after he had read some of the literature, he is now eager to get, in, quote, eager to get involved in different ministries, unquote. When we were in Russia, I was teaching at a theological training institute. I decided to try something a little bit different at the final exam at the end of the course. It was to be a pass-fail oral exam after this intensive week-long course. But I sensed from the, the group of pastors there that there was this growing tension and anxiety, what they call it, test anxiety. And I felt like it was getting in the way of their learning experience. And so I announced at the beginning of the exam that everyone had passed. And smiles appeared and tension just seemed to vanish. And then I turned my attention to grilling the students with the same questions. Nevertheless, only now their motivation had turned instead from a self-absorbed fear of failing to a desire to learn the material and to express it well, which they did. The assurance of God's unconditional love and acceptance creates that kind of environment where a believer can serve God and others with confidence instead of dealing with a constant cyclical fear of failure. It's the difference between growing to know a father and bending to a taskmaster. This assurance cannot be obtained by self-examination, but only by focusing outside of ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard that Vance Havner used to tell a story about an old Christian grandmother who would worry about everything, everything that came along. She just wearied her family by saying, well, well, what about this? And what about that? And they finally got so tired of this. They said, grandmother, listen, you're just going to have to trust the Lord. To which she said, oh, mercy. Has it come to that? Yes, grandma, it's come to that. It always has to come to that. You just have to trust the Lord. You have to believe him. Well, how do we confront the lordship view of spirituality? How do we deal with it? How do we stand faithfully for the gospel of grace in the face of the lordship view that appears time to time? And how can we strengthen our position and our practice? First of all, I believe that we must articulate carefully a biblical theology of motivation. We've been hitting it here and there. It, we need to talk more about it. Motivation for practical sanctification should logically have little importance in the lordship view of the Christian life. If it is true that godliness is guaranteed, if it's true that faith encompasses obedience, if it's true that regeneration transforms, why is any motivation necessary? On the other hand, because conduct and progress is relative and, any, and its evaluation is subjective and our evaluation of their view, there is indeed much room for doubts about the genuineness of one's salvation. And those doubts will not motivate believers to live for God. It will motivate them to conform their behavior to a degree so that they can maybe earn the title of genuine Christian. Uh, but the best motivations are internal. The motivations of love, gratitude, duty, desire to please God, a fear of his discipline, perhaps, a desire for rewards and eternal significance. And these flow naturally from a free grace theology. When we examine the New Testament, how do we find that Paul motivates his readers? Never, never do we find him assuming that their godliness will be automatic, the result of their justification, an automatic result. That's why he commends them when they do live a godly life and walk in faith and love, as we saw in Colossians 1. And that is why he exhorts them to live a godly life. And never do we see Paul casting doubt on their salvation. He assumes that those who have believed are saved. Instead, what Paul does is exhort his readers to live up to their new identity, to walk worthy of the calling in which they are called, and to live like the children of God that they have become, to enjoy the blessings they already have, to live in light of the expectation of their future 
and eternity. Second, we strengthen our position when we demonstrate godliness ourselves. We who proclaim grace must be careful to practice it. And we who admit the possibility of Christians who disobediently despise God's grace must not disobey disobey ourselves, lest we give the Lordship salvationists the validation that they seek for the charge that we're antinomianism and have diluted the gospel. This reminds me to warn you, as you know, that when we confront Lordship salvation, expect to be misrepresented. I think that is the fate of all who faithfully preach salvation and grace and sanctification by grace, as Romans chapter 6 shows us. You're not preaching it right unless you're being misrepresented and criticized. We will be called antinomian. And while we comfortably use the term free grace to describe our view, they will label it as, quote, the no effective grace position, unquote. And we will hear them refer to us derogatorily as the, quote, no lordship, unquote, or the non-lordship position. Now, with these derogatory misrepresentations, they persuade gullible people or people who haven't made up their mind, they persuade them on the emotional level. Who wants to be associated with a position that is a no lordship position? I don't. And yet we on the free grace side say that Christ's lordship is absolutely essential in the accomplishment of the work of salvation. We say his lordship is absolutely essential and demanded the moment a person is a believer. And yet we're called the no lordship position in a misrepresentation that persuades people on the emotional level. Third, we must stay planted in the Bible. We must be completely biblical and loyal to what the Scripture teaches. We are to be loyal to the Bible before we pledge allegiance to a theological system. We are accused of interpreting the Scriptures with a theological bias by the Lordship teachers. And you know what? They're right, because everyone is subjective to some degree. Everyone is influenced by their background and context to some degree because no one is perfectly objective in their interpretations. But I tell you what, when I look at the two sets of literature that is out there, ours and theirs, our arguments and explanations are a far cry from what we typically hear in the Lordship camp. One even writes that the Bible must be understood, quote, from a particular systematic point of view, unquote. It is as if the Lordship salvationists, especially those of the Reformed persuasion, begin with theology instead of the Bible. And if we were to compare the two sets of literature, I'm confident it would show that we have a deep and serious concern for exegesis and have proven it and how we handle the text over and over again. And yet we only see just a shadow, if that, on the Lordship side. And I am not being unfairly critical, but you tell me where the exegetical articles are found. In this debate about the gospel itself, proof texting and theological dogmatism is not enough. But that's what we're getting from them. But neither will citing the reformers or anyone else as equal and final authority be enough. With all due respect to my theological superiors and forebearers, it is not Augustine, Luther, or Calvin who will determine my interpretation, but the Bible itself. Theological tradition and systems have their limitations. They are limited by what the Bible says, by what the Bible doesn't say, and by what the Bible leaves ambiguous. And if we insist that lordship salvation not quote authoritatively from these men, then we must follow our own admonition. Before we are Calvinists, Arminians, Calminians, or whatever you want to call it, we must be Biblicists. Conclusion. Lordship salvation desires a greater spirituality for those who have believed, they say, but it fails to provide the environment for that spiritual growth. Instead, I believe it offers a confusing system in which the outcome is guaranteed, but not really. And one is surely saved, maybe. You know, I want to promote your T-shirt up here, Bob, because uh, once saved, always saved is what we believe. Now, my only problem with it is that it looks like a bullseye, and uh, and it's in the wrong place. But uh, where did the, 
right over the heart. Deadly. Once saved, always saved. But if we had to summarize lordship teaching, it might be like this. Here, here's for their T-shirt if you ever run into them. Once saved, always saved, if saved. Or we could shorten that to once saved, maybe saved. Only a proper understanding of God's grace gives us the motivation to yield ourselves to the Spirit's working. He's not the spirit of fear, but he's the spirit of adoption that has brought us in the glorious family of God and given us sonship. And that is why we open ourselves to his work in the Spirit-filled life. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.